Our scripture uh, today is from the book of Philippians. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 as we prepare to hear the word of God preached this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, on page 980 if you're using a few Bibles. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen. That's in the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. That's not something to be taken lightly. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for your word that it is enduring, uh, Lord, that you have uh, revealed uh, your word to us. You have uh, shown us who you are through your word and, and the works that you were doing in and through your church. Oh, God, I pray that you would help us to, to hear carefully the things, the realities that, that you were are making happen here at Kirk of the Plains. Uh, Lord, what a, what a delight, what a joy it is. Uh, to see the way that you uh, um, love your church, but also, Lord, the way that you proclaim your glory in the midst of your church. So help us, Lord, to, to hear these things, take them to heart, uh, to stand fast upon the promises that you give us this day. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, all around us, uh, we are bombarded with the message that, that life is all about you, right? And you're probably thinking, yes, if people would just realize that, we, this would be a better world, right? That sometimes is the way. You know, we hear things like, you know what's best. Your opinion is right. No one should question you. No one else will take care of you, so it's up to you to look out for yourself. Be self-assertive and get what you can out of life. You can do anything you set your mind to, right? These are all the kind of things that we hear going on around us. And I don't think it would be too extreme to say that what's being communicated to us is that you are God and you are in control of your destiny. You're in control of your life. Which that sounds so good at first, right? And as I was joking earlier, we think, yeah, that, that sounds great. But is it really but imagine, if you would, and I think we actually are experiencing this in, in our culture today, imagine the pressure that this 
puts on us to be in control of our lives and how it affects our relationship with other people. And it even causes isolation. You know, as, as imperfect people are trying to play God and insist on their own way, causing us to be at odds with one another. And, and we see that, that the more that we exert ourselves, the more isolation, the more damage, the more it affects our relationship. But the good news of the gospel is, is that we don't have to carry that burden upon our shoulders. That our hope is not uh, that we are competent to run our own lives, but as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, but that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's our hope, that we don't have to do that, that God is doing a mighty work in us. What a comforting verse, if you really stop and think about it, as you struggle with sin, as you go through trials, as you just go through the daily grind of life, to know that God is actually doing something. He's actually accomplishing a work in us. What a, what a great verse of comfort. And Paul's not just satisfied to know this truth, but he prays that this would actually be a reality in the life of these Philippian believers. Because embedded in this verse, in verse 6, is this process of sanctification, where by God's grace, he renews Christians in the whole man, in their whole person, after the image of God, to die to sin and to live under righteousness. That's what's actually happening in verse 6. That, that's the work that he's doing, that he's going to bring uh, to these Philippians. He'll bring to completion at the day of Christ. Now, what specifically does this work look like in the lives of believers as we wait for that day where we will meet Jesus face to face? Well, Paul gives us a picture that uh, of the sort of the developing Christian life, of that process that is going on in the life of believers in verses 9 through 11. And I'm going to use, if I could, sort of a agrarian uh, imagery here as we go through this passage, uh, sort of stating that it begins with the seed that we see in verse 9, and it ends with a harvest in verse 11. And so let's just sort of look at this process as we, as we walk through this passage. First of all, the seed. The seed... Of, of Christian begins with love. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, of course, you know, when we hear of love and the culture in which we live, typically it's, it has to do with romance. It's some kind of romantic love. But the love that Paul is talking about here in Philippians is agape love. It's self-sacrificing love. It's God's love. It's a, it's a love that's a choice. We, we choose to love a person. It's an act of our will. Uh, a love that, that demonstrate, that Jesus demonstrated by humbling himself and becoming a man and dying on the cross uh, to purchase a people for the Father. It is a love that, that does what is good for others, not uh, taking ourselves or 
our wants or our desires into account than meeting the needs of others. Now, Paul opens up his own loving heart to them in verse 8. Look what he said. It goes, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, whether Paul is consciously or unconsciously uh, doing this, Paul sets an example of what love means to the Christian. His love for them was, was real. His, his lifestyle, the things that he did for this church, demonstrated his love for them. It's, it's not just a facade to sort of keep up the appearance that he's an apostle and he's someone great. He truly was a messenger of God, a servant of God, to go to, to share the gospel with his people. And, and rather, Paul's love was, was like the love of Christ, not, not merely an imitation of Christ's love, but the heart of Christ had, had taken possession of Paul, so much so that Christ has become the center of Paul's life. What did Paul say? For me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. Why would it be a, a thing to gain to die? Because then he could be in the presence of his Savior. And he could worship him. Because Christ was everything to him. Now, it would have been easy for the Philippians to question whether they could experience such love, especially since there was so much turmoil in the church and fighting and bickering and promoting their own agendas and stuff. And there was, there was a sense in which they were sort of acting like little gods. And so therefore it caused this tension. But Paul, but Paul points out that, that the love, the agape, was already in them. Look at verse 9. Paul makes reference to your love. He, he's saying, you guys already have love. God has already planted the seed of his love in your hearts. Uh, Paul makes reference to this in the, in the book of Romans. As he writes to the Roman church, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, the last part of that verse, uh, Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as we receive this, the Holy Spirit in us, God's love is also given to us. I think about the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, uh, verse 15 and 16. And, and uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he talks about uh, their, their faith and, and how he prays for them because he believes that the Spirit of God has, has converted them, and they are now believers. And, and the evidence that he gives is this. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So first of all, Paul sees faith in them. But the second thing he goes, and your love toward all the saints. That's why he never ceases to give thanks for the work of God in them, because he sees both faith and love. Those go together. And so Paul's not speaking of the Philippians as lacking love, and therefore they need it, but as possessing love, and that it needs to grow. It needs to abound. Uh, Paul saw love that occurred in Philippi, you know, as these people came to faith in Christ. Think about Lydia. As she heard the gospel and she believed, what did she do? She immediately opened her home that Paul and his companions might stay with her. Or, or think about the Philippian jailer. Here he, he was, he bound Paul's feet in chains, 
But then once the earthquake happened and, and Paul shared with him the gospel, then what, what did he do? But then he bathed the wounds of the Apostle Paul. He cared for him. He showed love uh, as soon as he came to faith in Christ. So Paul gives thanks for the authenticity of their love. But here he prays for uh, the generosity and the quality of their love, that it would abound more and more. You see, true love is not something just that you possess, but true love constantly grows and it increases. And so with great compassion for these believers, Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. He prays the same thing in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. He prays the same thing for the church there. You see, when God makes us new creatures in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. What God has done, uh, God has already done for us everything that needs to be done. You know, that when we are made that new creature, He has, he has, he has saved us and He has uh, given us all these spiritual blessings. Uh, when Second uh, Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn to Second Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter says that... Uh, his, that it's God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence. You see, God has given us all things that are necessary to walk in godliness. You know, so I, I, I want to, to make that point... As we live our lives in the midst of our struggle with sin and the things that we endure. Sometimes, you know, we sort of feel like our, our Christian walk is two steps or three steps forward, two steps back. And it's always a battle. It's always a struggle. And there is that aspect of the Christian life. But, but I want us to see what Peter is saying here. Uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Right? Both Paul and Peter point out that our earthly life is an outworking of what God has already done for us. And I think we need to understand that. Sometimes I think in the Christian life as we're sort of struggling, we can have the temptation that we have to somehow lay hold of, of these spiritual riches that we have in Christ. And the reality is, no, they've been given to us already. And what Paul is doing is calling these Christians to become who they are in Christ. The, the new nature is already ours in Christ. It's just waiting to be expressed. It's poised for growth as we work our, our salvation with fear and trembling in obedience to the Word of God. You see, it's too easy to become lethargic or weary in our spiritual growth, especially when it comes to our relationships with others. It, it's not unusual to tolerate or to run from hurtful relationships rather than putting in the effort necessary for there to be reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. We too often forget that the love of Christ is the most central thing of all and the most gentle and potent force for renewal in our lives. And Paul is praying that these Christians, that the love that God has already given to them would grow 
and abound even more. So how does that love grow? Well, we've already talked about the seeds. Let's talk about the stakes, if we could. If, if you're a gardener and, and you like to plant tomato plants, whether that is buying a plant already partly grown or you want to grow it from a seed, whichever way that plant starts to come up, and you know that with the tomato plant, you have to put stakes down and you have to tie it to stakes so that that plant can continue to grow. Otherwise, it just sort of falls over and the fruit rots and, and it's just sort of a mess. And, and in one way, the Apostle Paul is sort of talking about two stakes that, that need to be in place for this plant to grow. And look at the, ver at the end of verse 9. He goes, And it is my prayer that, you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. With knowledge and discernment. Now, first of all, knowledge. You see, love is, is primarily a desire to give of oneself to serve the needs of others. But, but to do so, love needs to know how to serve others. Love needs to be instructed by, by knowledge in order to fulfill love's desire to serve. I mean, think about a doctor uh, who knows how to make a diagnosis and perform an operation on a patient. That's the only way they're going to save their life. If, uh, if Aaron, you know, there's no way that Aaron would have me do brain surgery on her tomorrow. I don't know how. I don't have the knowledge. It would not be an act of love for me to perform that surgery. But thank God he's provided good doctors that, that can do that. And love needs to see clearly and speak truthfully. And, and the knowledge that Paul here refers to is not just ordinary knowledge like that of a doctor or medical things, but, but the word for knowledge here is, is sort of a compound word that could be translated full knowledge. Uh, it speaks of a transcendent and moral knowledge. It's the knowledge that comes from God through his word. Just like uh, the prophet Hosea said to God's people in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, um, the prophet spoke uh, and he's in, on behalf of the Lord and he said, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. In other words, the Lord has a problem with you guys. He has an issue with you. And he said, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. The people did whatever they thought was right. They did not follow the knowledge of the Lord. And as we seek to love others, we need to ask ourselves, is our love guided by what God has revealed to us in his word? Or are we prone to sort of go by our own gut instincts when it comes to... Uh, to loving others and to do what we think is what's right. But even if we're a great student of the Word of God and we have great theological knowledge, does that mean that we're automatically going to love others? And the answer is no. It, it is, is it not possible that one can have, can increase in knowledge and theology and other great things while there is little to know growth in Christian love and character. And that's why there's two stakes that hold up the plant. There's not only knowledge, but there's also discernment uh, in verse 9. Uh, this is the only time that actually that this word discernment is used in the New Testament, but it does appear 
in, in the Greek translation of the Septuagint of the Old Testament in a number of places, especially in the book of Proverbs. And it carries with it the idea of the ability to make a moral decision. The ability to make a moral decision. It, it stresses the need for wisdom in order to do the right thing and to speak the right words in circumstances. Actually, if you look at Paul's, uh, um, what Paul says in, in verse 9, he says that, uh, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, right? Um, Paul is praying for wisdom that guides these Christians in every circumstance that they have. Without discernment, love doesn't know how to express itself with actions and words that are appropriate to each situation. And oftentimes, love uh, will ask the question, I, I, I desire to do something for these people who are in great need, but what should I say or what should I do to meet that need? And only by discernment does love have the direction to love wisely in ways that give healing and joy and life to those who are in need. Let me give you an example, if I might. Uh, you're probably fairly familiar with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians 6, 1, where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, God gives us his knowledge here, right? But what does it look like to restore one in the spirit of gentleness? And that is where we need discernment to understand how to do that, to have our lives molded and shaped by the word of God and the spirit of God, to understand, to have the mind of God to carry this out. And so the combination of knowledge and discernment really unites the personal knowledge of Christ and a practical understanding of people. In other words, knowing Christ and understanding people are both necessary for love to abound more and more and more. Uh, the hymn writer Edwin Hatch, uh, he caught sort of this idea in the hymn that he wrote, Breathe on me breath of God, which we're going to sing in a little bit. But he said, part of that hymn says that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou dost do. That's what love looks like. We need God to enable us to know what love is and the fortitude to actually love other people, the wisdom and the fortitude to do that. And so you have the seed and you have these stakes that are in place to help us to love one another, but then there is just that steady, continuous growth that takes place as well. And we see that in verse 10. The purpose for abounding in love and knowledge and discernment, he said, is so that you may approve what is excellent. The word translated excellent literally means things that differ. Okay, that's not super helpful, but in this context, the word means those things that differ because they are superior, because they are better, because they are excellent. And so Paul's concern here is not the choice between what's good and what's bad, but the choice between what's good and what's best. And, and, and Paul's prayer for this church is, that he loves so much is that their love will grow as it is informed by the knowledge and the discernment so that they'll be able to choose the best way to express love 
to each other. Love seeks what is excellent or best for the other person, but what is best is not always obvious. Sometimes you have equally good options. And so which one to, do you choose? And in this case, it's necessary that you have knowledge and discernment that you might discern what is most excellent. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans, he, he uses the same terminology. Uh, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 18, Romans 2, 18, Paul, uh, he refers to the discernment of what's best in his description of the Jews who rely on the law of God. He says that you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Now, in this case, the approval of what is excellent or superior is guided by the written law of God, right? That, that he had given to his people in the Old Testament. But out of that law grows the oral law, okay, that was inspired by the desire to prescribe what was best for every situation in life. And we oftentimes think of the oral law is sort of a, a bad thing um, because we see Jesus sometimes correcting the Jews because they misunderstood what God's law was prescribing. And so when they gave the oral law, then they sort of strayed from what God's intended purpose was for that law. But what the Jews were doing, in all fairness to them, is they were seeking to understand how that law applied in every situation of life and, and to carry that out. And, and so that's what they wanted to do. And, and in Paul's uh, section in Philippians, he talks about how in regards to the law, he was faultless, right? But then Paul goes on and he says, but when he met Christ, he considered all those achievements that he had as a Pharisee in keeping that, or, that law and the oral law perfectly as lost um, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. And so in his prayer for these Christians, Paul prays that the expansion of their love, not the expansion of the law, will instruct them in how to choose the best way to love one another. Now, you may be listening to what I'm saying, and you may say, now wait a minute, Rick. So you're saying you're supposed to just follow your heart instead of following the word of God? Uh, it may sound like the relativism of situation ethics, but uh, if, if love, but not the law, guides the choices made in the situations of life. But in situational ethics, there is no place for absolutes. And as I said earlier, you have the stake of the knowledge of God and the discernment of God that causes your love to grow. And so those are there and those are the boundaries that will guide us. So it's not just situational ethics or just following your heart, but it truly is following the, the word of God. The final thing we see is, is the fruit. Um, Paul goes on to say, so that you may approve what is excellent in verse 10. In verse 10, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, in, in Paul's thanksgiving, he expresses his confidence that God would carry on his work to completion at the day of Christ in verse 6, right? But then now he's saying that, the, that these Philippians, he's praying that they would abound so that 
the believers would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Here again, he's taking us back to that day of Christ. So the purpose of this love is really to perfect the, the, the Christian community, that it may be pure and that it may be blameless. God is doing a work in us that as we love one another, that it might make us uh, pure and blameless. When love abounds in the community, then the community is characterized by a pure desire to serve each other rather than envying and hurting one another. And so Paul prays, asking God to do what Paul already had confidence that God will do, uh, perfect the community in Christ until the day of Christ. To be pure and blameless, of course, isn't uh, a work that we try to do. It's not that we try to make ourselves more pure, but it is the work of God uh, as, as love does its work in our midst. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Do you see what Paul is, is saying here? He sort of opens up with this whole thing of love, but then he, he opens up just a, a whole life that is different through love, that, that it has different principles that it holds dear, that it wants to approve what is excellent. It wants to see what is the best thing, the superior thing to do as we live in relationship with one another. It, it's different in its character of holiness. Uh, you have both the inner character, that we are to be pure, but the outer conduct, which we are to be blameless. That's just another uh, combination of talking about walking in holiness, but then different in its ultimate product, that it bears the fruits of righteousness, the practical righteousness of holy living. That's what Christ does in the midst of his church as he calls them to abound more and more in their love. Now, as we hear passages like this, sometimes we can walk away feeling sort of overwhelmed because we can sort of view it as a demand of what God wants for us to do. But before we succumb to that temptation, let me ask you a couple of questions. First, are we motivated to succeed? Are we motivated to succeed? Not success in the sense that the world gives, but as we think about verse 6, as God is working in us to complete us for the day of Christ, are, are, are we motivated to succeed in that? Are we zealous for our own sanctification? Not only us personally, but also the sanctification of one another as well. Is that something that's a priority in our lives? Is that something that's part of our prayer life like it is a part of Paul's prayer life? Are we motivated to succeed in our sanctification? Secondly, are, are we aware that what happens, or excuse me, that what appears a hopeless goal in our minds to, to love and, and to grow to holiness is in reality, it's a guaranteed outcome. This isn't something that um, uh, God is commanding us to do in some ways of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. 
But it is, it's, it's these questions that really sort of help us to look at the emphasis of verses 10 and 11. Actually, if you look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1 that I read this morning, there are seven distinct references to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of those two, verses 6 and 10 are looking forward to the day of Christ. And, and the one that's before us in verse 10 presents that day as the great objective towards which we are not only moving, but we're aiming. That's our goal in life, is, is living in light of eternity. And yes, we have our sins, and, and we have those struggles that we have. We, we fail in holiness. Uh, we must surely be challenged in light of the thought that, that the Lord God is coming again. But we must never forget that this is the fruit of righteousness that God is developing in his people. And it comes to us, uh, its fullness, through Christ, and that it is designed to the glory and the praise of God. And so this isn't something where it's, this is our goal that we have to somehow accomplish. Do we have a place in it? Yes. I think about Jesus' uh, story in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Mark 4, 26, he says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and he sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and it grows, and he doesn't know how. You know, I mean, have you ever done that? You plant a garden, and you look, and the seed eventually comes up, but you're thinking, how does this do this? Well, we don't have anything to do with that. That's something that God does. And the earth produces it by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full ear of corn. And then when it becomes ripe, then we, we harvest that. But it's the same way with the fruits of righteousness. Our obedience, our discipline, our hard work, they're not insignificant and they're not optional. You know, sanctification, we have a part in that. We are to walk in obedience. We are to walk by faith. We are to to trust the Lord, right? On the contrary, they are God's intended context of growth. If you sit back and you never read the Word of God, and you only come to church on Sunday morning, and that's really all there is to your life, you're not going to grow in love. Your love will not abound more and more. These things won't just happen if you sit back and just say, okay, God, you do it all. I have no part of this. But also, something else energizes the growth that takes place in the fruit that eventually bears a harvest. All of this is done through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And so as we walk by faith, as we trust the promises that God uh, gives to us, He is telling us, I will complete this work. The Father, verse 6, is cease, cease, ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Son. Verse 11, the Son is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Father. And, and it is in this context, in this setting, that the daily task of obedience in our life, while it remains hard, brothers and sisters, it doesn't remain fruitless. And I want to encourage you this morning, especially if you're struggling. Maybe you've been struggling with sin or the trials that have come to your life 
you know, and, and we find ourselves, we are often neglectful and we are frequently failing and we are ever inadequate. Uh, and yet, the end is secure. God is at work. He's going to complete what he starts. He finishes what he starts. So I want to encourage you today uh, that where you're at, to trust the Lord and, and to look to him and he will complete it. Amen? Let's bow our heads and, and take a moment just to consider what the Lord has given us today in his word. Heavenly Father, we lift our prayer with the Apostle Paul and we pray that we would abound as a congregation more and more in love, that we would be able to discern that which is excellent, being guided by knowledge and, and discernment so that we may be holy, we may be pure in the day of the coming of Jesus Christ, that we may bear the fruits of righteousness. Oh, Lord, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who may be struggling, who may feel very unworthy, who may feel under the load of, of trials or, or temptations. Maybe they have given in to sin over and over and over, and they think, oh, God, is there any hope? Do I even have faith? But, Lord, I pray that you might strengthen them that you might show them, Lord, the work that you were doing in, in their lives and encourage them to trust you, to trust your promises, to know that you are a God who has never lied and you are actually going to accomplish these things. Father, I thank you for the work that you have done in our congregation and the love that I see between brothers and sisters. But help us, Lord, even when we disagree with one another, to be gracious, to be kind, Lord, to seek your face, to know what is right. Uh, let us assume the best of one another, uh, Lord, and not just uh, villainize uh, each other in order, Lord, that, that our point might be made. Oh, God, you are there, and we thank you, Lord, for your work, and pray this uh, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.